Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in John chapter 1 today, so if you have your Bibles, again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. Uh, Please go ahead. Some of them I heard already said they brought their Bibles. Hallelujah. That that is a sign of true conversion, by the way. So so John chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 19 today, and we're going to go ahead and read through verse 34. I don't anticipate getting that far, but while we breathe, we hope. So, John 1, beginning at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when, Jesus, when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Of God. Well, when we get to John chapter 1, verse 18, we are at the first major division in this fourth gospel. Uh, we have been looking at the verses preceding, and everything up to this point, over the course of the previous weeks, everything up to this point has been prologue. That is to say, everything that we have been studying up to this point has been an introduction to the gospel of John. Now, it's some of the most famous introduction in the world. This famous prologue where John employs this Greek philosophical language and applies it to Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, full of truth. But now, all of a sudden, we have a major shift. We are leaving the introduction, and we are actually getting into the narrative itself. John's Gospel, like the other three, was intended to be a biography, the story of Jesus' life and ministry, and this is where it begins. 
We've been introduced to Jesus as to who he is, not merely a man, but in fact God in the flesh, the second person of the triune Godhead, the one by whom all things were made. Now we're beginning to take a look at his earthly ministry. We said that each one of the Gospels begins in a slightly different way. We said that Matthew and Luke begin with a genealogy, talking about Jesus' earthly life and his family life and how he was descended from David. Mark's Gospel begins with his baptism in the Jordan River, skips over the first 30 years of his life. John essentially does the same thing. He skips over the first 30 years of Jesus' life and dives right in here at the beginning of his ministry where he is baptized by John down there in the Judean wilderness. Now, this is significant, this, this shift in the Gospel of John. And from verse 19 through the beginning of chapter 2, what John does is he gives us a blow-by-blow account of the first week of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's what we have here. A ministry and a week that begins with John the Baptist down there preaching to the people in the south, in the wilderness, and then it goes through with John identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God, Jesus calling his first disciples, and then Jesus performing his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's the end of the first week. We're going to see it's a very full week, and it's a very momentous week. But before we get to it, we need to return to this figure of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. We've already taken a look at John because he was introduced to us briefly in the prologue, in the introduction, and we said that one of the things that stands out about John, whom Jesus referred to as the greatest man ever born, high praise indeed coming from the lips of the Lord himself, we took a look at the fact that one of the things that made him such an extraordinary individual was the fact that he was the forerunner. His job, his place in history, was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. His job was to witness. In fact, you could go so far as to say, and it is by no means an exaggeration, that John was born for this very purpose. He was born for the express purpose of preaching and preparing the way for the coming Messiah. Uh, This becomes abundantly clear If you take a look at John in Luke's Gospel, keep your finger there in John for just a minute and take a look at Luke's Gospel beginning at verse, chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. I pointed out to you that while all of the Gospels begin at a slightly different place and in a slightly different way, there is a point where all of the narratives converge and they all converge with this extraordinary figure of John the Baptist. You all know that Jesus had some strange circumstances surrounding his birth, some miraculous elements surrounding his birth. The same is true of John the Baptist. There were strange circumstances following or surrounding John's birth as well. So we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. And in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, that is the priestly class, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, 
because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, it was the responsibility, if you came from the priestly class, if you were descended from Aaron, that once a year you had to go up to Jerusalem as a priest. You may have lived somewhere else, but you went up to Jerusalem and you performed your duties in the temple. So that is exactly what this man was doing. Zechariah, it was his duty to go up once a year to the temple. Um, it was his division's responsibility at this particular time of the year, so he went up and he was just performing his duties in the temple. But we're told that while he was there, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him, while he's in the temple, mind you, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. That is generally the reaction that people have when they encounter angels. Um, Angels apparently are very impressive beings. Uh, This is probably an understatement. Most of the time, people fell dead with fear. That was, of course, the case with the guards at the tomb when Jesus was resurrected. But we're told that he was greatly troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. This sounds remarkably similar to the angel's visitation to Mary, doesn't it? So what we're seeing here is that John is likewise being called for a very specific purpose, even before his birth. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now that's an extraordinary statement. That from the moment of his birth, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now you can go on yourself and read the rest of the story. What happens to Zechariah? He's doubtful. I would have thought that an angel would have been enough to impress anybody and convince them, but that wasn't the case. He was doubtful. He was up there in age, a lot like Abraham and his wife, doubtful. And uh, something happened to him as a consequence of that. You can go ahead and read it for yourself. But the point I want you to notice is that there were these strange circumstances, miraculous elements surrounding the birth of John. He was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. He was going to turn many people to the Lord. The hearts of many people would be converted. But his primary responsibility was to do what? Prepare the way. His job is to bear witness to the coming Messiah. So John the Baptist was somebody who was born to witness. And as we're going to see, he was indeed a very effective witness. We saw that at the beginning. That's one of the things that we noted. If you go back to John chapter 1, Right there in the middle of the introduction, John sort of takes a slight detour. 
He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, without Him not anything was made that was made, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it, you're tracking along, and then all of a sudden, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's the first introduction we get to John the Baptist here in this gospel. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light, that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So we've already seen John, a little bit of John, in this introduction to this four gospel. We noticed a number of things about him that is stated there. First of all, he was not the light. He came only to do what? To bear witness to the light that all men might believe in the light. That's what John the Baptist was born to do. He was born for greatness, but he was not in any way to eclipse the one who was to come after him. Now we see those three elements. His not being the light, his bearing witness to the light, so that others might believe in him. We see that fleshed out here in detail. So go back to verse 19. We're told that as John was down there in the Judean wilderness, performing his task of preaching, bearing witness to the coming Messiah, calling people to repentance, baptizing them, we're told that a delegation of Jews who were sent by the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem came out. This would have been the Sanhedrin that sent out this delegation. The Sanhedrin was the most powerful body within Judaism in the first century. You know, we have three different branches of government, don't we? We have a legislative branch, we have a judicial branch, and we have an executive branch of government. And the reason we have that is because we recognize that if all of the power is vested in one single branch of government, then there can be what? Abuse. There can be abuse. So we have rightly, I think the Founding Fathers rightly, divided up the responsibility. We have a series of checks and balances in our government. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. But that wasn't the case in Judaism in the first century. All of the power, all of the authority was vested in this one group, the Sanhedrin. They made the law, they interpreted the law, and furthermore they enforced the law. So they were powerful men, and they were all men. There were no women involved in the Sanhedrin. So this is a very powerful organization. And what is interesting is that they send out an official delegation. In other words, they've heard the word about this man down there. He, he dresses strangely. He wears camel's hair, and he eats honey and locusts and so forth. He seems a little odd. But nevertheless, we're told all of Jerusalem, all of Judea was going out to him. They were hearing him preach. They were cut to the quick. They were going down into the waters of the Jordan River, the muddy Jordan River, in spite of the fact that these were self-respecting people, educated people, some of them, going down into the waters, and they were being baptized for the repentance of their sin. The whole nation was in turmoil because of this man, John the Baptist. And they begin to ask the question, might he be the one? Might he possibly be the Messiah? 
Can you imagine what a temptation that would be? Can you imagine when an official delegation comes and says, might you be our savior? I think that would have been a tremendous temptation to want to say, well, you know, I, maybe I just, you know, I, you know, you might feign some sense of humility, but that would have been a great temptation. I don't know how many of you have ever read Rudyard Kipling's short story, The Man Who Would Be King. They made it into a movie with Michael Caine and Sean Connery. If you don't want to read the, the short story, which is really good, by the way, Kipling is wonderful, go and watch the movie. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story about a man who was offered exactly what John the Baptist was offered, an opportunity to be a Messiah, an opportunity to be a king. It's a story of two English soldiers who desert the British army. This is back in the 19th century. Uh, They are roguish characters, and uh, they go off to a section of Afghanistan that had been unsettled, hadn't been seen by white men since the time of Alexander the Great. And they go off there in the hopes of making their fortune. And what ultimately happens is that one of them, the figure played by Sean Connery, is mistaken through a whole series of events to be a god. And the people want to make him their Messiah. Now, he knew he wasn't a god. He knew he wasn't the Messiah. But the temptation was so great. The man who would be king that he gave in to the temptation. What happened to him? Well, read the book or see the movie. (laughs) But suffice it to say, it does not end well. It does not end well. But it's understandable. We can all understand why the temptation was there. This delegation comes to John the Baptist, and they want to know, are you the Messiah? Are you our Savior? They're ready to lift him up. Remember, the purpose of the Messiah was to come and drive out the enemy. Everybody expected he was going to be a great political or military leader. They were expecting to lift him up upon a throne. He was the man who would be king. But I want you to notice how John responds. Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I love the way the gospel puts it. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. A great opportunity, even greater humility. So the next question they ask him then is, are you Elijah? In the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet had spoken about one who would be like the prophet Elijah who would appear on the scene prior to the appearance of the Messiah. So if you're not the Messiah, are you that one who's going to be like Elijah? Is Elijah going to make a reappearance here? And are we going to see him? And might you be Elijah? He looked a lot like Elijah. He acted like Elijah. Elijah lived out in the wilderness. Elijah covered himself in camel's hair and late locusts and honey and that sort of thing. So John the Baptist sounded like Elijah. I mean, if you can't be number one, being number two is not too bad. But what does John say? He said, I 
am not. Are you the prophet? Back during the time of Moses, there was an expectation that prior to the appearance of the Messiah, there would be a prophet who would appear upon the scene, a great prophet who would call people to repentance. So perhaps, if he wasn't Elijah, and he wasn't the Messiah himself, perhaps he was this great prophet. But he said, I am not. No. So they said, well then, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And I love the way John replies. He says, I am merely the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm merely a voice. You know, you don't see a voice. You may see the person who's speaking, but you don't see the voice. You only hear the voice. He describes himself as one who is to make straight in the desert a highway for the Lord, a workman. How many of you really pay attention to the workman on the road? We've we've all been on the highway from time to time when we're making our way up 95 or whatever it is, and they're they're doing construction, and there are those fellows that are there paving the highway, the guy that's running the steamroller, the guy that's holding the sign that says stop, and then he turns and it says move slowly. You've all seen those people. How many of you people, let's be honest, pay close attention to the guy who paves the road? Maybe you do. Well, you're better than I am. I got it. Well, in the words of Rudyard Kipling, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Din. Most of us don't pay close attention to these people. They're doing their job. And yet that's how John describes himself. You want to know who I am? I'm not the Messiah. He confessed, I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Well, who are you? I'm just a voice. I'm nothing more than a voice. I'm just a workman on the road, paving the way, filling in the potholes for the one who is to come. That's one of the reasons why John is such an extraordinary individual. And yet he was, Jesus said, of all the men born of women, no one was ever any greater. Well, I tell you about John the Baptist here because what John the Baptist was called to do, you and I are called to do. John was called to witness. He was born to witness. Well, I submit to you this morning, that's what you and I are called to do. Every single one of us. The responsibility of bearing witness about Jesus Christ to the world is not the sole responsibility of John the Baptist, nor was it the responsibility only of the apostles, Peter, James, and John the Twelve, or the Apostle Paul at a later point. It is the responsibility of every single Christian. The words of the Great Commission, to go ye into all the world, was a message for all believers. Here's how we find it in the Catechism. It's on page 855 in the Book of Common Prayer. You know the Catechism is a series of questions and answers. Here's the question under the category, the ministry. And who are the ministers of the church? Now... If I were to ask most people, who are the ministers of the church? Who are the ministers of the church? You would probably say, well, Brian McGreevy and Jeff Miller 
and Andrew O'Dell and Justin Hare and Bill Christian. Those are the ministers of the church. That's not what the catechism says. The catechism says the ministers of the church are laypersons, bishops, priests, and deacons. Who are the ministers of the church? Again, laypersons, bishops, priests, and deacons. And I want you to notice who comes first in the list. Laypersons. Now, you all know that I was ordained. I was ordained as a deacon on June 25, 1994, as a priest January 15, 1995. When were you ordained? At your baptism. That's exactly right. You were ordained at your baptism. As a layperson, you were ordained at your baptism. So here's the next question. What is the ministry of the laity? What's your ministry since you've been ordained? The ministry of laypersons is to represent Christ and His church. To bear witness to Him wherever they may be. And, according to the gifts given them, to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world and to take their place in the life, worship, and governance of the church. Your job is to represent Christ and His church and to bear witness to Him wherever you may be. One of the most extraordinary things about Christianity, historically speaking, is how quickly it expanded throughout the world. If Jesus died sometime around the year 33 A.D., do you realize that the Christian gospel had reached China by the year 60? That's extraordinary. There's nothing quite like it. I think this is one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the rapid advance of Christianity. Remember that in those early days, Christians were a and persecuted group. They were a sect of Judaism. They actually got kicked out of the synagogue by the Jews. They were persecuted unto death under a whole series of Roman emperors. And yet Christianity, in spite of all of that, filled the earth. In the short span of about two, three hundred years, it had brought the Roman Empire, which had persecuted it literally to its knees. There's no success story like that in all of history. It's just a fact. Now, you have to ask yourself, what accounts for that? Well, certainly one thing that we would say accounts for it as believers is the power of the Holy Spirit. God had a plan. But let me tell you something. God, in order to accomplish his ends, always uses particular means. So what were the means that God used to advance Christianity, the faith to the ends of the earth or so it would seem, in such an extraordinarily short period of time. Well, here's how a number of Christian writers put it. The early Christian writer Tertullian was writing slightly before or after the year 200, and he declared in his apology, We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camps, the tribes, the companies, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left you nothing but the empty temples of your gods. Sir Edward Gibbon, in his epic work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, noted that in the early church it became the most sacred duty of a new convert 
Let me say that again. The most sacred duty. What what is the, the primary, the most sacred duty of a new convert to Christianity? He said the most sacred duty of a new convert was to diffuse among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he had received in Christ. Adolf von Harnack, the famous German church historian, put it this way. He said, we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. There it is. Informal missionaries. Every single person within the sound of my voice is called to be a missionary. Now, you may not be called to be a formal missionary, but you are called to be an informal missionary. Your job, because you've been ordained at your baptism, is to bear witness to Jesus Christ wherever He may be. Now, how many of you feel equipped to do that adequately? Well, that's what I want to do in the time that we have remaining. Like I said, we may not get through it, so you may have to come back after Easter and hear about it. But one of the things that's so extraordinary about John the Baptist is he he sets us an example. The Bible is not a textbook. If you approach the Bible as a textbook, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's not meant to do that. But it sets us an example of how we are to do so. It gives us examples of extraordinary people who did things well, and our responsibility is to emulate their example. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. That wasn't just a physical falling, it was a spiritual falling. Do the things that I do. And that's what we are called to do. So if John the Baptist was such an effective witness, so effective that people thought that he might be the Messiah himself, what made him such an effective witness? How did he do it? Because how he did it is how we are called to do it. Well, when it comes... To effective witness, the very first thing we have to recognize, if you're going to do your job and do it well, is you've got to recognize it's not about you. It's not about you. Now, that's a very hard thing for people in a selfie society to realize. It's not all about me. That's what was so amazing about John the Baptist. I'm not the one. Don't look at me. I'm just the voice. If you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, the first thing you have to realize, it's not about you. In other words, you're not the Savior. You know, when people come to you with a problem or with a need, there's always that temptation to want to fix them. You know how it is. I want to to solve your problem. But the reality is we're not their Savior. We can't fix them and we can't fix their problem. There is one who can. I've sometimes said to you before, if you're driving up I-95 and you want to go to south of the border, and heaven only knows why you'd want to go to south of the border, but let's say you do, you don't stop at the sign that says 10 miles to Pedro at south of the border, or the sign that says 5 miles to air-conditioned rooms at south of the border. Because you realize that the sign is not the destination. If you're going to be an effective witness, your job is to be the sign. You're not the destination. Your job is to direct people to the one 
who is the Savior of the world. That's the first thing. Second thing you'll notice from John the Baptist is that a verbal witness is required. Now, right there at that point, you can hear the needle go right off the record. A verbal witness is required. That makes me very uncomfortable. You know, it's, it's funny. I can actually use the uh, illustration of a record to this crowd, and you actually know what that is. <laughs> a lot of young people today wouldn't have a clue as to what a record is. But a verbal witness is required. What did John do out there in the wilderness? He preached to the people. Now, some of us are uncomfortable with that. We're uncomfortable talking about Christ. We're uncomfortable talking about religious things. Perhaps you've been raised in a home where you're told that there are certain things you just don't discuss in public, politics and religion and that sort of thing, so you don't talk about those things. But Jesus' command to his disciples was go into all the world and preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel. A verbal witness is required. Now, I know what St. Francis said. I know that St. Francis said to his disciples when he sent them off, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. And we say, yeah, I want to be like Francis. That's, that's, that's where I'm comfortable. That's what I like to do. But Francis got it wrong in this respect. Now, he is right. You and I need to live an authentically Christian life. That, that, that is absolutely true. We need to be genuine. We need to be legitimate in the way we live. But if you're only living a moral life, at best, your witness is going to be confusing to an unbelieving world. They're not going to know why you are living the way that you do. At best, your witness is going to be confusing. I'll give you an example. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce tells the story of how on one occasion he was talking to a woman who came up to him and wanted to share how she had witnessed to a co-worker. He said, oh, well, that's wonderful. How did you do it? She said, well, and she was working in Philadelphia at the time in a big company. She said, I was going on break, and one of my co-workers came up to me and handed me a $20 bill, and he said, when you go on break, would you do me a favor? Uh, just around the corner is a little shop. Would you get me a carton of cigarettes? And so she took the $20, and she was going to do it, and she thought about it for a while, and she, she got up the courage, and she went back to him, and she handed back his $20, and she said, I, 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 I can't do it. She said, I don't believe in smoking. And she said to Dr. Boyce, it made me so, feel so good to be able to witness to Christ on that occasion. Now, there's a great example of, of, of what I'm talking about here. Here was a woman who was opposed to smoking because she felt that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you want to defile it with nicotine and all that sort of thing. Well, she's entitled to believe that, of course. The problem, of course, today is that there are just as many, perhaps more unbelievers who are opposed to smoking than there are believers today. The whole culture has turned against that sort of thing because we recognize that it's dangerous to our health and so forth. But what he was asking her to do was not against the law. He was asking her to do him a favor, and she refused. Now, what do you think he took away from that conversation? Do you think he was really thinking, well, she just has concern for my soul because she's a lover of Jesus? She probably thought that she, he probably thought she was rude. He asked her to do him a favor, and she just refused. And not only that, but slapped him down with a moral statement about his bad habit. 
That is not witnessing to Jesus Christ. Nor is simply living a moral life witnessing to Jesus Christ. Why? Because, to be perfectly honest with you, there are a lot of moral atheists out there in the world. When you do something extraordinary for another individual, the question that is going to pop up in their mind is, why are you doing this for me? What's this all about? I was once serving in a church, and the altar guild was, I just new to the church, and the altar guild was back there in the sacristy, and they were working, and I would go back after every church service, I still try to make that a policy as much as I can, and go back and thank them for their service. And about the fifth week, somebody came up to me and said, what do you want? (laughs) What are you after? And I wasn't after anything at all. But see, it gives you an opportunity, doesn't it? gives you an opportunity. Why am I doing this? Well, let me tell you why I am doing this. John the Baptist provided a verbal witness. An encounter with Christ requires a verbal witness, and if you've had an encounter with Christ, it will always lead to a verbal witness. That is one of the first ways that you can tell that you have truly been transformed, you have been reborn is when you begin to talk about Jesus Christ. We see this throughout the New Testament. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. One is the example of the Apostle Paul himself. Turn to Acts chapter 9 for just a second. Now you understand that Paul at this point in his life had been a persecutor of the church. This is the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus. He had been persecuting the church. He's on his way to Damascus, which is about 110 miles from Jerusalem, because he had heard that the Christian gospel, the followers of the way, as they were called in those days, had spread that far. He regarded Christianity at this point as a damnable deceit, something that needed to be stamped out. And so he had been deputized by the Sanhedrin, incidentally, to go to Damascus, arrest the Christians, bring them back for trial and execution. Now, you know what happens to him on the way. He encounters the risen Jesus Christ. This great light comes flashing about. Paul is knocked to the ground. He hears a voice speaking, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? And the voice comes back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the town of Damascus, and I'll tell you what must be done. Well, when he gets back to his feet, he's blind. You all know that. He's blind. And he has to be led by the hand, by his traveling companions, into the city of Damascus. Now, what happens when he gets there? Well, we're told that God called on a prophet by the name of Ananias and said, Ananias, I want you to go to Damascus. I want you to find a man. He's staying at the home of Judas on Straight Street. I don't know why. I just find that fascinating that we get the address But you're going to find him living on Straight Street. His name is Judas, who owns the house, and he's got a man there from Tarsus. He's been blinded. You're going to go lay your hands on him that he might receive his sight. And you know the story. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about this man. You don't want to use this man. But the Lord says, you go. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. 
And laying his hands on him, that is, on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And look at the very next verse. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. How much did he know about Jesus at this point? Practically nothing. He'd be an enemy of the cross, and almost instantly, we're told, immediately he began to proclaim the good news. Do you ever notice, used to be the case, whenever a baby is born, the first thing that the doctor and everybody else listens for is a what? A cry. Why do we listen for a cry? It's the sign of life. It's the sign of life. It's the indicator that the child is alive and well. When those lungs fill with breath and a wail comes out. The same is true spiritually speaking. That when you are reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit, the first thing you want to do is tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. Now we've got a couple of other examples of this. One is in John chapter 4. It's going to be some time before we actually get there. But it's the story of the woman of Samaria. You know the story. Jesus comes one day to Samaria. We're told he had to pass through the region of Samaria. Samaria was that area sandwiched between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. Most Jews would avoid Samaria. If they needed to get from the south to the north or from the north to the south, they would take a much more circuitous and dangerous Transjordan route, cross the Jordan River, go on the opposite banks of the Jordan River, and then recross the Jordan River into Galilee or into Judea so as to avoid the Samaritans, whom they hated. But on this particular occasion, we're told Jesus had to go through Samaria. That is to say, he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go through Samaria. And while he's going through Samaria, he comes to a place where there's a well. It's hot, it's a blistering day, it's dusty. Jesus sits down at this well. The disciples, were told, went into the village to find food. Jesus is sitting at this well. It's the middle of the day, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And around the bend comes this woman carrying a large pot for water. And when she comes around the corner, she's just, her mind's on other things, and she turns and she sees this man sitting on the corner of the well, and she pauses. That's the last thing she wanted to see was a man. Now she musters her courage. She's come that far. She goes down to the well. She's not saying anything to this man. He's a stranger. Stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. But he asks her for a drink. He said, would you mind giving me a drink? She looks over at him. She can tell by the way he's dressed he's not from around these parts. And she says to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? To which he replies, well, woman, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for a drink. And I'd supply you with water that would spring up in you like an artesian well, satisfying you for all eternity. And she scoffs. She says, you don't even have something to draw water with. You're asking me for it. You don't even have a bucket. 
then Jesus begins a conversation with her. He says, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, that's right. That's right. That's true. You don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had about five husbands. And the man you're living with now, he's not your husband. And the woman says, again, one of those, you know, you always get the sort of condensed version. She turns around, she says to him, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. (laughs) And Jesus begins to unfold his true identity to her. Now, the reason she came out in the middle of the day, as opposed to the beginning of the day, when all the other women came out and would gather there at the well, is because when everybody came out at the beginning of the day to have water for their day-long chores, they talked about all the town gossip. And she didn't want to be there because, guess what? She was the town gossip. She was a notorious woman, a soiled dove. That's why she didn't want to encounter a man. The last thing she wanted to see was another man who took advantage of her, exploited her, and there was Jesus. And now he unfolds his true identity to her and his love for her and his willingness to satisfy her fully. Not in the way that other men had tried to satisfy her, but to satisfy the deep, longing hunger of her heart with a love the likes of which she had never experienced. And we're told, I love this, she left her pot and went back into the town. She came out to get water. She forgot all about the water because he really had planted within her a stream of water flowing up to eternal life. And this woman who had done everything in her power to avoid others, all of a sudden, look at this. And so the woman, verse 28, left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Be the Christ. See what happened? She encountered Jesus Christ and she wanted nothing more than to go out and tell others about it. That was true for the Apostle Paul. He had been a murderer. He had been one who was persecuting the church. But when he encountered Jesus Christ, immediately he wanted to go out and talk about Jesus Christ and prove from the Scriptures that he was indeed the Messiah of God. One final story. We won't go into it in great detail. It's the story of the man born blind. Jesus was on his way up to Jerusalem. He and his disciples encounter a man who's born blind, begging for alms. And the first question out of the disciples' mouth is, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. This man was born this way, that the Son of Man might be glorified. And you know the story. Jesus heals him. But he heals him on the Sabbath, a violation of the law according to the Pharisees. And when they find this man, who everybody recognized, who's now been healed, they wanted to know, how has this happened to you? What has happened? And he said, this man named Jesus. And they said, well, wait a minute. He's not supposed to be doing that sort of thing on the Sabbath. And so they go looking for Jesus. They can't find Jesus. They get the man. They bring him in. They said, you need to tell us more about him. He tells everything that he knows about Jesus. And they try to go out and arrest Jesus, but but they're still fixated on this man. And eventually they bring the man back in and they say, you've got to testify 
that he's a sinner. And he said, sinner I do not know. Good man, bad man, I do not know. All I know, all I know is that I once was blind, but now I see. Can you do that? Can you say to others, I once was blind, but now I see. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this one be the Messiah? That's what John the Baptist did. That's what he was doing out there in the wilderness. You can do that. If you're a Christian, you must do it. You are called to do it. You are called to be an informal witness wherever you are to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, I'm a little nervous about that. That's all right. God doesn't always call the qualified, but he always, always qualifies the called. And if you're a believer, you are called to do it. Now if you want to find out how we do that specifically, you're going to have to come back in about four weeks. In the meantime, do your best with the people that you meet. One way you can do it, incidentally, is to invite them to church on Easter. It's one of the greatest feast days of the year. Invite them on Good Friday. Invite them on Easter. You've got friends, relations, neighbors. Invite them to come. One of the things we're going to see is that at one point, one of the people in the, in the Bible, in, the, in this narrative that we're going to talk about, goes to his brother and said, I think I found the Messiah. And he says, can anything really good come out of Nazareth where you're saying this man is from? And he says, why don't you come and see? You can do that. You can invite your friends, somebody who doesn't have a church, or maybe somebody that's not been involved in church for some time, say, why don't you come with me to St. Philip's? And they're going to say, well, is there anything good at St. Philip's? I've heard those preachers are rather long-winded. Come and see. Come and see. So church is about to begin. Why don't you come and see and meet the man who can tell you everything you've ever done and put within you a well of water springing up to eternal life. Amen.